Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Tuesday, August 9th, 2022. I'm your host, Lou DeVizio. I hope your week's off to a good start. I don't know about you, but it's been great to see some water back in the Rio Grande here in the Albuquerque Reach. Just about a week ago, a five-mile stretch had dried here in the city. We've had more rains, but we're still in drought territory, so things could change quickly. And unfortunately, those rains are creating dangerous and deadly conditions in the northern part of the state. A 64-year-old man, Benjamin Torres, died Sunday in Mora County after police say an intoxicated driver that he was traveling with tried to make it through heavy floodwaters. The car flipped and Torres, the passenger, drowned. The 30-year-old driver is being charged. That's the fourth death so far tied to flooded burn scars in just the last few weeks. So please be safe out there. Now, let's get to the rest of the headlines impacting people here in New Mexico right now. Now, some breaking news just this afternoon on Tuesday, August 9th. Albuquerque police say they've detained a suspect in the murders of four Muslim men. Police Chief Harold Medita made the announcement on Twitter. Now, fear has been moving through Albuquerque's Islamic community after those killings. They all happened within nine months. The latest came days after the city and the governor had held a press conference to address the string of seemingly targeted homicides. Police had identified a vehicle of interest in the case, too. A dark gray Volkswagen, either a Passat or a Jetta, has dark windows. We haven't been told where where investigators got the photo of the car or if that car has been found in addition to the suspect. The situation has been getting national attention, with President Biden saying he's angered and saddened and that these killings have no place in our country. Now, this is a developing story, so be sure to stay up to date beyond just this podcast. We're learning new information in the helicopter crash that killed four first responders last month. Investigators with the National Transportation Safety Board say the helicopter was returning home from a firefighting mission when it made a rapid descent without making any turns. It eventually crashed into the ground. The preliminary report lists two witnesses who saw the chopper go down from a ridge about a half mile away near Las Vegas, New Mexico. It could take a year or more before we know exactly what happened. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham and New Mexico Attorney General Hector Balderas have filed a motion to dismiss a lawsuit challenging the legality of abortion in New Mexico. The motion is in response to a lawsuit from a group of conservative lawmakers and former officials who are challenging whether the state legislature's repeal of a 1969 anti-abortion law allows legal abortion across the state. The legislature repealed that law in 2021. The 100th intertribal ceremonial is going on right now in Gallup, New Mexico. Thousands of people from across the state and the world have gathered there to celebrate their indigenous heritage. The event began last Thursday with the ceremonial night parade. There was an incident that quickly turned the celebration into a tragedy. Police say 33-year-old Jeff Irving drove through the parade route while drunk over three times the legal limit. Fifteen people were hurt, along with two police officers. Irving has been charged with more than 21 crimes in the incident. It really was a scary situation. One of my colleagues, Benjamin Yaza, and I were there on Cole Avenue across from El Moro Theater in downtown Gallup when it happened. I was on the sidewalk shooting some video, Ben was in the street and got out of the way just in time. The screaming was really what got to me. We didn't see anyone get hit, but the car turned onto Second Street towards Route 66 where it eventually was stopped by police there. I'm sure it was even more jarring for people who were there with their families, hoping to have a peaceful night of celebration. 
After it happened, we caught up with Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez, who was directly in the path of the vehicle when it flew through the parade. He was visibly upset by what had happened, as were many of the people around him. This is what he had to say just an hour or so after that incident happened. You know, we're all shook up. Uh, you would see this on television, uh, and you would think it will never happen here. Uh, I'm sorry to say uh, it happened here in Gallup, New Mexico. I know there's a lot of family members that are uh, shooken up, scared. I just ask that if you know of someone that was at the Gallup ceremonial, just give them a call, uh, comfort them, pray with them. Um, all, all throughout the Navajo Nation, we ask for your prayer as well. Prayers for all the people that were here at the Gallup ceremonial. We, got a, we had a lot of visitors. Uh, a lot of our Navajo relatives were here as well. We were in the path of the vehicle. Uh, and I thank God that uh, the folks that were around me, uh, our team members, our council delegates, uh, were not struck by the vehicle. You know, it, it came straight towards us, the vehicle. And uh, I just want to say to everybody for their, uh, thank them for their quick action, getting out of the way, uh, our police officers telling everybody to get out of the way, um, my family's okay, uh, our team members are okay, a lot of the folks that were in the straightaway, they're all okay. So today I ask for your prayer, everyone that's listening, Navajo Nation. You know, this is just evil creeping into our communities, you know. We're all shooken up and it just, I was uh, feet away from this vehicle uh, as it drove through the uh, streets. And I'm sure uh, a lot of people are angry. A lot of emotions happening right now. I'm angry, um, but we also have to, you know, pray and think about our relatives and if you need help those of you that were at the gallop ceremonial and you're shaking up call somebody those of you that know somebody that was at the gallop ceremonial parade call them check on them and if you need help on our facebook page there's some counselors that you can contact if you need help right now please use those don't just keep your emotions your frustrations in please talk to somebody okay I wanted to play that clip mainly for what President Nez had to say as he finished if you need help please find someone to talk to mental health has become a larger focus lately in all of society and rightfully so it's important for anyone going through any sort of mental strife to talk through those issues with someone anyone so that an instance like this doesn't have to reverberate through the people that were traumatized by it the incident really left a dark cloud over that event that night and into Friday morning. But credit to everyone involved in the ceremonial. When Ben and I went to Red Rock Park Friday afternoon for the first day of celebration there, people were pushing forward. We spoke to several people, 
vendors, guests, and performers who all told us it was important for them and their communities to come together to come back and show resiliency after such a terrifying incident. Ben is working on a piece right now that I think captures all of that emotion and sets the focus back on the people and the culture that this event was meant to honor. So don't miss that piece from Benjamin Yaza that's going to be this Friday on New Mexico In Focus. Of course, that incident in Gallup and the flooding death in Mora County have shifted the focus back on New Mexico's troubles with drunk driving. But more broadly, it's the state's long history of alcohol-related problems. If you haven't read it already, New Mexico In-Depth has published an extensive seven-part series called Blind Drunk. It exposes the fact that alcohol is killing New Mexicans at a higher rate than anywhere else in the country. It also investigates the state's blind spots while trying to shine the light on solutions. Journalist Ted Alcorn wrote each of the pieces in the seven-part series, which focuses on the issue itself, drunk driving, alcohol's impact on violent crime, poisonous myths when it comes to who carries the burden of this problem, failings in our state's public policy, and the overarching issue of addiction and how it's treated. It's a fascinating appraisal of our unfortunate reality here in New Mexico. With such a broad and nuanced issue, thoughtful and responsible reporting are necessary. This week, Gene Grant spoke with reporter Ted Alcorn about how we approach this topic and what other journalists should keep in mind when they write about alcohol use and misuse. We're here with Ted Alcorn. He is an independent writer who wrote the brilliant New Mexico In-Depth seven-part series on alcohol in our state and the uh, results of it for all of us. But Ted, one of the more interesting bits about the series is you take it beyond seven parts and you have a bit uh, out there for fourth estaters or journalists about reporting on the issues of alcohol. And it was interesting, you include resources specifically for reporting on alcohol-related stories, stuff like information on measuring drinking behaviors and how to properly measure deaths related to drinking, how the public policy environment plays in all of this. Why was that important for you to include in, in your uh, suite of other articles? Well. I got to say, when I landed on this series and started investigating, the more I learned, the more I felt that there was to write. I really felt like I had found a big and untapped subject, you know, kind of a lane that I could run in. And as fun as it is to have a lot to cover, mm -hmm. um, there's really an, a lot of opportunity, I think, for other reporters to be involved in this. And whether, frankly, whether your beat is health or crime, or policing or business, or politics, um, there's an alcohol angle. And because we did a lot of work unearthing and weighing and comparing different kinds of data sources and everything, we wanted to make some of that work available to make it a little bit easier for other reporters who come after with their own perspective. And, you know, um, so yeah, New Mexico In Depth has put together a list of resources for reporters to sort of demystify some of the data sources that we used. Mm -hmm. And um, on August 18th, we're going to be holding a webinar for reporters, not only in the state, but nationwide, who are interested in reporting on alcohol issues. And that will be linked through New Mexico In-Depth's website. And it's easy to sign up for uh, an event to that um, and an invitation to that. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the bigger picture is, um, you know, alcohol use disorder is a problem in New Mexico. And we could certainly stand to have a lot more light shown on the subject. It's a really, it's a huge issue across the country, too. Um, in 2020, alcohol-related deaths spiked 25 percent wow. so i think that there's you know there's an opportunity for reporters everywhere to be starting to attend to one of the largest preventable causes of death uh, that we have around mm -hmm. on the event on the 18th who's going to be with you on the is there a panel what does that look like 
I think my editor and myself are going to be leading this webinar, mm -hmm. uh, presenting the findings briefly of our investigation, but then also talking through some of our process, talking through some of the resources that there are and answering questions that reporters near and far might have um, about where to obtain data and, and you know what kind of data there is out there to reflect on some of the topics that you mentioned. Because um, there's a lot of these big public health surveys that um, the CDC runs that offer sort of different glimpses of drinking behaviors. And so just trying to help people understand what the surveys do say and don't say, what the mortality data that's out there says and doesn't say about the trends of increase that we've seen, um, just to clarify that for reporters. Mm -hmm. I'm interested, your part five is every door is the right door, and it, it mainly featured a, a fellow named Steve who had been struggling with alcohol for a number of years. It's a good ending to the story, thank goodness. It was actually a, a very good ending to the story. But along the way, he lost his family. He, you know, the, the relationship with the kids are not great, uh, all that kind of thing. As reporters, you know, we, we want to humanize these kind of things and find the Steves of the world. How difficult is it with alcohol? Are people not necessarily as confessional as they might be with other substances possibly about alcohol? Is there stigmas? What are some of the challenges for reporters trying to get folks to open up about this? It was really challenging, yeah. um, but I felt it was really important to get inside a family uh, to understand its impact, alcohol's impact on a family, because you know anybody who's listening to this, if I would, I would venture to guess if you look at your own family and friends, you recognize how alcohol has had an impact there. Yep. Sometimes we overlook it, but um, this is something that truly crosses our through cross section of our entire society. Um, and it's a disease that affects, of course, the individual who is suffering from it, but it really does ripple outward and affect the relationships to almost everybody else in the world. Right. And so I wanted to capture that. Um, but you know, in trying to find people that are willing to speak about it, you know, it was more challenging than many other stories that I've covered. Um, people who had, you know, very good reasons, I think, of their own to not want to share their story. But mm -hmm. I would say, often because of the stigma and shame that we we hape or or carry on, uh, because of our associations between that and alcohol. So I give a lot of credit to the patient I interviewed, Steve, and to his family members who were very courageous in their openness with me. And, you know, I only got a, a tiny glimpse into their lives. I think that um, the glimpse that I saw helped me understand some of the bigger trends that the research suggests that are out there, both about patients' struggles to get into treatment, but also truly the possibilities of, um, of healing that are, are there when the appropriate kind of counseling and medications are available. So um, yeah, it was bittersweet, of course, to hear about the losses that he and his family endured. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think we really rightly should take a lot of hope from the fact that he's got sort of a, a new beginning, um, even in his older years, um, by tackling this topic, this, this problem head on. Yeah, I was rooting for him by the end of the article, honestly. I, I just want this man mm -hmm. to, <laughs> just to get better in his whole family. Uh, public policy, obviously there's a lot of coverage there for reporters, our, our state legislature, et cetera, et cetera. I'm in, you know, not to make a prediction here, but I, I'm interested in, we've got alcohol you know, starting to be delivered at home now. We've had a lot of vote on getting alcohol easier to purchase. Is there a public policy debate you're seeing kind of brewing here that reporters should be paying attention to for this upcoming bit of time here in New Mexico? Well, 
you know, it's unfortunate that there's been two trends that have really been moving in opposite directions. The, the alcohol-related deaths in this country, not just in New Mexico, have been on the rise. Yeah. And the overwhelming trend in our policies towards alcohol have been to relax them and to weaken them. And particularly during COVID, the restaurant and hospitality industry, which was buffeted by the economic sort of headwinds at that time, successfully lobbied to increase their ability to sell alcohol, not only in, in New Mexico, but across the country. And I think that's what has a lot of public health scientists worried, that we seem to be responding to a, a crisis that is reaching you know, epic highs um, by doing, on the margins, things that are going to probably increase that harm. Mm -hmm. um, and sadly, I don't think that there's really that much debate at all about the public health merits of those changes. Um, some of the sponsors of the, the reforms in New Mexico to modernize alcohol bills told me that they felt like delivery of alcohol would save lives because it would keep drunk drivers off the road from going to pick up more booze. Right. Um, and that actually shows this sort of myopia that they have about DWI being the only problem. Because as a public health scientist said to me, you know, that couldn't be further from the truth. Giving people who are already inebriated the ability to get more alcohol at home is only going to aggravate all the other problems that we know alcohol causes for people in the home. So um, it's it's concerning. And, you know, the cat's a little bit out of the bag when you allow, you know, hundreds or thousands of restaurants in the state now to be selling, uh, you know, liquor and, and to be getting licenses to that. And um, so it's going to be challenging to think about how to move forward as, as we do sort of normalize alcohol everywhere mm -hmm. at all, all times. You know, personally speaking, I don't think there's going to be a rollback, so to speak, but I think this is going to get a hard look. I think we're going to have a few months under our belt of home delivery. And I couldn't agree with you more. Someone that's, you know, three quarters in the bag at home in a stressful situation is able to call to have more alcohol delivered. It's just, it, it's, it, it's absurd at a certain level when you think about it. And so it, the piece is going to have to fall a little bit Reporters are going to have to look at it, put it all together. Then we can kind of make some policy decisions at that point. Do you see any other big policy decisions coming down the pike for reporters, either here or nationally? Anything that's, uh, you know, glaring at you at, at this point? Well, um, one of the other measures that uh, has been broadly recommended it has to do with DWI. And as I said, a focus only on DWI can be missing the forest for the trees a little bit, but still hundreds of people die in, in into alcohol intoxicated crashes in our state every year. Mm -hmm. And Utah just was the first state in the entire nation to adopt uh, a blood alcohol threshold of 0.05. Right. And, you know, we're used to for many years having set ours at 0.08. Uh, we did that after the crash, the Cravens crash that Representative Ferrari mentioned. Um, and, you know, Utah, our neighbor, is very different from New Mexico in a lot of ways, but drinking and driving is pretty standard wherever you go. And when they passed that stronger blood alcohol threshold, they saw crashes there fall by 20%, wow. fell faster than other states around the country. So the evaluators of the federal government have looked at it and say, you know, this is a recommended policy. And um, so the 0.08 threshold that we have actually is relatively lax and adult about my size, a little less than average, but you know, could drink several drinks and still be below that blood alcohol threshold. So uh, I think thinking about this sort of in terms of your experience, if you're already hitting 0.05, you probably shouldn't be on the road. Mm -hmm. And it might make sense for our lawmakers to, to catch up with that too. That's a good point there. I'm glad you brought that up. That is in one of the articles as well, folks, if you want to check it out on New Mexico In Depth. That, that was very interesting, that Utah anecdote you just mentioned. I mean, 
That's a big number. I mean, any state would be thrilled with that, I have to imagine, as an overnight yeah. number. But that's a hard sell, literally, to the liquor lobby and restaurants and everybody else. Um, my last question for you, as far as reporters are concerned, what, what do we need to change? Is there an attitude about alcohol? Because I love the way you, in the piece you mentioned, look, it's so pervasive, you drink it, you mentioned, you know, others drink it, and we manage it responsibly. And it gets into a very gray area because people can really hide addiction well when they're good at it. You know, they can go through a whole day half, like I said, half there. And, you know, what do, what do we need to do as reporters? How do we beat back some of the cynicism and the fatalism that's out there about alcohol is just always going to be part of our universe here in New Mexico? Well, and I'm not here to say that uh, there's a simple and definitive answer to this hard challenge. Yeah. You know, the brewers that have told me they are part of the oldest profession in mankind have a point. Like, alcohol has been a part of civilization since pretty much the beginning, and with good reason. Yep. Um, it's woven into these moments of our lives that are very meaningful, and I'm no teetotaler, but I think that um, it's it can be hard to talk about solutions to addressing alcohol use without being accused of being a prohibitionist or I being see. said that you're starting a slippery slope to... Um, you know, abolishing alcohol. Mm -hmm. And part of what makes this subject interesting to me, a reporter, is it is a popular substance. It is woven into our culture. But undeniably, like, we don't want 2,000 New Mexicans to be dying each year because of it either. So um, figuring out those solutions is not, you know, is going to be a process. I think we're at the point where we should really start trying to figure them out. And we cataloged a lot of uh, the recommendations that experts made that the state could do to become not only at the end of the pack, but frankly, the leader in the country. Mm. But that's not going to take us to a state that's totally safe for alcohol. It's not going to keep all the folks that have an alcohol use disorder like Steve, you know, it's not going to help everybody turn their life around. But I think making those kind of evidence-informed decisions and seeing what the results are and then learning from them is, you know, the most, or is the most basic thing that we should commit to doing. Mm -hmm. Ted Elkhorn, thank you very much. I really appreciate spending a little extra time on this for reporters. And again, it's the 18th. Is there a time of the day set for that already? We're going to we're planning to hold it in midday, I think noon. So um, okay. for folks who can take a little lunch break. You know how that goes too. Reporters got to eat. You know how that goes too, right? <laughs> Ted, thank you very much. New Mexico in depth, seven part series plus two additional pieces in it as well. And I would encourage folks to um, read this uh, thoroughly and really sit with it really kind of sit with it and think about it because it's a big issue here and Ted really kind of lays out how enormous it is. So Ted, thank you and hopefully we speak to you next time you come out to New Mexico and uh, we can stay after this problem. But we appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Gene. Absolutely. Next Friday, August 19th, we're devoting a large chunk of our show to this discussion. Gene Grant sits down with Mr. Alcorn, a clinical psychologist, a doctor of internal medicine in Gallup, and a state representative to talk through the problem and what needs to change to solve it. That's next Friday on New Mexico in Focus. We'll also post the entire discussion on our New Mexico in Focus YouTube page, so check that out too. Now, to another discussion that's getting attention from our state lawmakers, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission's plans to approve Holtex license to store nuclear waste in New Mexico. Holtec is a private company that's been working on that for years now, despite opposition from most of New Mexico's political leadership. 
Laura Paskus talked with State Representative Angelica Rubio about the project that would have our state take on nuclear waste from power plants from across the United States. Representative Rubio, thanks for joining me today. So as former chair of the Interim Committee on Radioactive and Hazardous Materials, you were part of lots of conversations about whole tech. Um, now the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission has announced that they plan to um, approve the company's license. Is this project a done deal for New Mexico? Thanks, Laura. So at, from a process perspective, it isn't the end of the road. There's still a number of steps that need to be taken. Um, but what happened last week is that the environmental impact um, study was approved. And so um, I think that there's just a sense of urgency from a lot of us who um, oppose it because it's it was the step that we thought would have really sort of ended this whole conversation. And instead, um, it's becoming more and more, um, I guess, real that this project may actually um, happen. Yeah, so in that environmental impact statement, um, the NRC noted that Holtec, which is a private company, plans to bring 10,000 canisters of nuclear waste from commercial power plants from across the U.S. Um, by train to this area between Carlsbad and Hobbs. And these canisters, I just want to mention, are, are really huge. These aren't like 50-gallon drums we're talking about. Um, are there certain aspects of this project in particular that really um, give you um, cause for alarm? Yeah, I mean, I think overall the project is very alarming just because the legacy that we've had here in the state with these types of industries really impacting frontline communities, that to me is very troublesome. But I think as uh, someone who chairs the Transportation Committee and um, sees a lot of the projects that are happening around the state, rail is not one of the um, pieces of infrastructure that I think we are up to par to be able to um, sustain something like this. Uh, the uh, company Holtec hasn't, doesn't have any idea when, um, I mean, like the end time, I mean, there's years and years that have been um, discussed around how long the canisters will be held in New Mexico, but there's like no end date. And that to me is very problematic. Yeah, this whole idea that this is temporary storage will be there for 40 years when we don't have a permanent repository anywhere in the country. I was looking back um, earlier this year, the Washington Post wrote about New Jersey's Oyster Creek power plant, which Holtec now owns and is decommissioning. And the reporter wrote that in nearly three years that Holtec has owned Oyster Creek, regulators have documented at least nine violations of federal rules, including contaminated water mishap, falsified inspection reports, and unspecified security lapses. Um, do we have a sense even of what this company's security or track record is like, safety record is like, and what kind of a relationship the company would have with the state? Yeah, I mean, I think that the issue that we're facing right now, and because it is a private business, is is number one concerning for me because we don't it's it's really unclear the kind of um what will how we'll actually be able to to i mean it's really tough to say 
I mean, I just, I, this is, I think what's scary about this whole process is that because it is a private company, we are, we may or may not be able to have the kind of, um, over, uh, oversight that I think is, is necessary. And, and that is, that's a really big risk for us as a state. And I, I think what's so frustrating for me is that as, as people are so desperate for economic development opportunities that they're willing to go this far just to create some sort of job that um, people may or may not be able to actually benefit from. Yeah, I'm just, it's so interesting to kind of watch this play out. And I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are. Why is New Mexico the place that has to take the the rest of the nation's commercial nuclear waste? It, it just it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I think it goes back to, as I mentioned, the legacy of the state. We have a tendency to do this. This is what I, I, I don't feel like we have another type of, we don't have imagination for something else other than to create jobs or to develop jobs that are essentially poisoning our communities and uh, destroying our planet. But like, those are the things that we have basically centered ourselves in. And so um, I think for me, this is just frustration that I, that I feel. Um, I grew up in the Southeastern part of the state. I, I'm very familiar with the communities that are being impacted and the fact that New Mexico has been selected as the place to do this just says so much, not only about how desperate communities are for, for jobs, but also how um, I think insincere people find our state. I mean, it's very insincere for them to feel, to see to see our state as being that um, place where you just come and you dump your, your trash. Yeah, um, this project, the, the governor is against it. The New Mexico congressional delegation is against it. The state land commissioner, um, lots of public outcry, many state legislators, and yet the federal government is still moving forward. The private company is still moving forward. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, again, I think it just goes back to the legacy. This is where uh, the, the atomic bomb was created. This is where uh, families, communities, like the downwinders have still been impacted, are still being impacted by the, all of that testing. Um, I, I feel that the federal government is, um, if, if people are, are really about states' rights, this should be the thing that we should be fighting with all of our um, power because um, this is, I think, um, an, it's an injustice in my opinion. And, um, and it's something that I don't believe we will ever fully recover from because there, there's just so much danger in what's, in what's happening with, with this process and that the federal government's complete disregard to uh, the amount of opposition to this project just says so much about um, how little they care about New Mexico and the people who live and reside here. All right, well, Representative Rubio, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Laura, I appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. This plan is not a done deal yet, but it's firmly on that path. We'll keep following it and we'll keep asking questions until we have answers. Thank you everyone for listening. If you like the podcast, please check out our show Friday nights at seven o'clock on New Mexico PBS. 
If that doesn't work for you, we always repost it on our YouTube channel, so you can watch it there too. Also catch up on our other social media channels, New Mexico and Focus on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Now, if you stay with us here at the podcast, Laura Paskus is going to be a more permanent fixture on the program moving forward. So keep an eye out for a new episode in the next couple days. In it, Laura talks with four members of the New Mexico Healthy Masculinities Collaborative. The group was formed in 2018. In that interview, Laura asks what healthy masculinities are, who should have these conversations, and what healthy masculinities have to do with healthy landscapes. She'll also get into why this toolkit is specific to New Mexico. Stay with New Mexico in Focus, the podcast, for more conversations and discussions like that one. I promise you, you will not find them anywhere else. Thanks again, guys. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio. For Tuesday, August 9th, 2022, this is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>